Amen. Well, good to see you. Happy 4th. Hopefully you had some good fireworks yesterday. Um, have a few announcements. Going to put them up here. Um, um, so if you have your Bibles, open them to Acts 1. We are starting a new series <clears throat> on the book of Acts. So say from the top, <clears throat> excuse me, we will not read every word in the book of Acts. If we were to do that and dissect each, it would literally take us a year to get through the book. And I have ADD too much for that. So if you're going to hang, um, reading the book along with us will be uh, a good thing uh, to keep up with what's happening. Um, so we're going to kind of capture the highlights today. Not even really going to get into the text very much. I'm just going to give you an overview. But in a day, let me give some rationale as to why I think it's a good idea to see what the book of Acts in a day where it seems that many Christians uh, have lost their way uh, amidst certain currents, uh, it seems right to remind our hearts of how this thing all started. Maybe if we can look back and remember, maybe see with new eyes, right? What was the catalyst? What was the motivating factor? Like what were the great ideas and the thoughts and the reasons of the early Christians? Like what did they see that was so compelling. Maybe if we can see that, right, we'd have some sort of standard with which we can then assess our own Christian journey in the times we find ourselves, right? The early Christian church seemed to think that everything else in their life became secondary, right? To knowing, delighting in Jesus, helping others know, helping others delight in Jesus, everything became secondary to them. And if, which we're gonna see in the book of Acts, right? Livelihoods, social standing, they're going to lose friends. They're going to move away from family. They would endure mass social rejection, even physical violence against them and their families, all because of this man, Jesus. What did they see that was so compelling to them that would lead them to live such radicalized lives that we would call fanatic? We'd look at them and say, you're a fanatic. I'm going to go with the moderates over here and hang out where it's cool and chill. And I don't have to be you know, crazy like you, right? Some of them beaten thrown into jail, murdered in the streets, y'all. Murdered in the streets, all because this man claimed to be God and they said, I'm not gonna back down about this, right? Something about the man himself, something about what he claimed deeply affected them and made it seem to them that to make him known and to know him was way more valuable than their own lives, right? They would be willing and would, we will see, suffer in some of the most dehumanizing ways rather than forsake Christ. That's, that's just the path they chose. And my big question during this whole series is why? Like, why, bro? I can't even get up early for Jesus, something, you know? Like, why, man? What did you see in this guy that compelled you to live in such a fanatical, radical way, right? And this is my thinking. This is why I think it's so relevant right now. If we can see, y'all, what motivated these guys, these jokers, this whole crew, these communities, right? What was the why behind the what, man? What captivated them? What was the catalyst? We might be able to see those places that in our own hearts and minds, we have strayed from authentic Christianity, right? I mean, did anyone else ever look around the culture of Christianity and say, how did we get here? From the spirit of Jesus, like read the text. I'm reading the text, looking at, reading the text, looking at how did we get here? Anyone else? That plague, anyone else? Keep you up at night? Anyone else? Just think, like, why does Christianity seem so anemic compared when I look in the Bible? I'm gonna read Acts. It's not my experience. 
I don't see that. I don't feel that in my community. What's going on? Anyone? Okay, so that's just me. What can seem so far away from the spirit of Jesus. I want us to sit with the contrast of these two things and ask some really hard questions. Like where in my thinking about Christianity, where in my experience of the Bible, where has my experience become cultural instead of biblical? So if we're gonna answer that question, we have to, it just makes sense that we start in the book of Acts where the whole thing started. Look at its origins, look at its roots, and then we can have some sort of idea, some sort of semblance of what God had in mind when he started the church, when he kicked this whole thing off, right? What kind of picture did he have when he ordained and initiated this whole thing? So when you get lost, which I would just argue that so many Christians today are lost amidst the current, the political currents, the whatever currents going on. When you get lost, all you really have are two points of contact that help you steer your course, where you came from and where you're going, right? And so my thoughts is let's sit with where we came from. If we refuse to sit with where we came from, right? If we refuse to acknowledge the shoulders on which we stand, First, we run the risk of losing our way. Second, worse, decide on our own terms what we think it should mean to be a Christian in creating something altogether different, right? So today, we're barely gonna get in the book, right? We're just gonna look at it, uh, kind of an overview, uh, give some of the context, give some of the reoccurring themes that you're gonna see, I hope that you see, over and over and over again as we go through the book of Acts, right? And my prayer is that as we sit with this book, we would begin to see it. I'm gonna see, I'm hoping that I'm gonna see something in the text that I'm gonna be able to convince you that you see that it's in the text, right? So it's not just me getting up here, you know, this is what I think, okay? I want you to see it. I want you to just get a glimpse of what happened in the early church, the reality behind why they did what they did and what motivated them to such risky and committed behavior. So let's read first 11 verses and then we'll pray for the mercy of God. Acts 1 Starting in verse 1 to 11. In the first book, O Theophilus. So already, this is quite unique if you've read the New Testament. Uh, not many books start like this. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, 
two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father, I ask for the peace of the Holy Spirit. God, I ask for the stillness of the Holy Spirit, no matter where we are or what we're doing. God, would we be able to sit with Scripture in a way in which we would give it authority in our hearts and lives, Jesus? Father, if we have, as we have set time aside to be with you, God, would you come? Do you help us in our weakness, Lord? Lord, help us be real Christians, Jesus. Have mercy. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So the book of Acts is unique. This will give you some academic knowledge here and a little, little background. There's no other book that starts exactly like this. Um, first of all, it's written to one person. Second, it's clearly a sequel. Uh, though it's one person, Theophilus, more than likely, <clears throat> we don't know this, more than likely a wealthy sponsor uh, of the writing of the book, a, a wealthy funder of the early church, but potentially, we don't know that. Uh, but we know that Acts was written by Luke the Apostle. In fact, most theologians talk about Acts as uh, Luke-Acts. They connect the two as one book, except there's two sections. The first is Luke, the second is Acts, right? Um, this is a sequel. And by Luke's intro, he gives us a glimpse as to what this entire book will be about. So I hope you're looking at the text. We're gonna look very specifically, okay? He says, in the first book of Theophilus, I have, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. As if to say, this book, this second book now, is a continuation of that. And I'm gonna tell you what Jesus continues to do and teach through the power of the Holy Spirit in the apostles in the earth. In fact, we'll see Jesus, y'all, in the entire book of Acts, Jesus is the only character that's on the stage the whole book. The first bit of it starts with the disenfranchised, small, uh, you know, minority uh, sects of, of these early Christians hiding in the upper room, okay? So there's, there's the first kind of group. And then it focuses in on Peter. The first eight chapters are gonna really focus on Peter and what he's doing. And then chapter eight, this other guy comes in, Paul, and Peter just kind of disappears. And then it goes on to Paul. Jesus is the only consistent character that's heard his talking about through the, through the entirety of the book. So the book could potentially be called, you know, we call Acts the Acts of the Apostles, right? A lot of people like to say, well, it really should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, or what I like to call it, the Acts of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. So acronym TAGISTA. I just say we just call the book that from now on. From this intro, we also know that the kingdom of God will be front and center. You need the title again? You need the title again. The Acts of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. There you go. You needed that. We know that from the intro, the kingdom of God will be central to the entirety of the book. It appears twice in the opening scene, that phrase, kingdom of God. It will appear again in very important transition moments in the book, okay? So every time the kind of the scenery changes at these kind of critical moments, Luke is very intentional about entering in that phrase, the kingdom of God, okay? It's not a ton in the book, but it appears at 
crucial transition moments. When Philip leaves Jerusalem to go to Samaria, a big move for a Jew, what's he talking about? Kingdom of God, okay? The first journey, uh, missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas, right? When they go at that point in the book, when Paul and Barnabas are leaving, they're going on their first journey, they are calling people into the kingdom. That's what they're talking about. The, the two key cities where Paul spends most of his time in the book, Corinth and Ephesus, um, he is, it is said, he is bearing witness to the kingdom. And then in the last chapter, they, they, theologians like to say that the kingdom of God kind of is this bookend of, of the book of Acts. The last chapter, it's also repeated twice. Paul is under house arrest in Rome at a very nice house. And he is, it says twice, talking about what? The kingdom of God, okay? So we know from the intro, we know from this kind of overview, the kingdom of God should dominate our thinking when we think about what is the book of Acts about, okay? But more than what they are just preaching, it's not just about what they're talking about in the book of Acts, right? It's what they are doing. And the question that we're gonna see answered in front of us is what does the kingdom of God actually look like on the earth, right? When a person or group yield to the kingship of Jesus, right? When we, when we begin to live as if Jesus was Lord of the universe, like what happens? What happens individually? What happens corporately? And perhaps the most important question we'll see answered is this, who's invited in? Who gets in on this stuff? Who is this for? And on what terms, right? So for us, of course, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that might seem like a super silly question. Everybody gets in, Chris, we're Christians. <laughs> we're gonna see. Um, not much, y'all, has fundamentally changed about the human heart in 2000 years, right? Uh, now, just like them, we today seem to have no problem finding reasons to exclude and not love others, right? Whether it be on politics or ethnicity or race or whatever, right? And as much as I'd love to boast about human progress and like the headlines can make it clear that we are still just as much finding reasons to exclude and hate people as they were back then. And one of the great over, this is crazy. It's going to blow your minds. I'm telling you, when we get in here, you're going to be like, what? One of the great overarching themes of the book of Acts is to answer this question. Do other ethnic groups get in on this or not? You don't think that's a question, do you? You're like, no, oh, we're Christian. Everyone, no, I'm telling you. What we're gonna see is the biggest controversy, the most divisive issue in the early church is do the Gentiles get in on this? And they fought about it. It was divisive, right? People lost friends over it. No, they don't get in. And if they do, they gotta obey all of our laws. Look, so much of the New Testament is addressing this issue. Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised, right? Yes, there's food that's unclean. Un I mean, all, so many books in the New Testament is addressing this issue. Do these guys get in or don't they? Because a lot of those guys, they say these guys don't get in because they're not Jews. They don't have dark hair. They don't look like us, you know? I don't think they should be in. They get in, then they should start looking like us. They should dress like us. They should do the same things we do. And that's the massive theological point of the book of Acts and the New Testament. Do other ethnic groups get in on this? And if so, on what terms? So we're gonna see that over and over and over again. What about Jewish law? Do they need to, do they need to like tan up? Right? If we're gonna hang out with Jews, we should probably tan up so we look like them, right? I mean, we giggle, we giggle, but we find less consequential issues than that to exclude someone. And they were the same back then, we're the same today. The biggest question that's going to be answered in the book of Acts is who gets in on this, okay? So I'm telling you, you're going to be surprised, all right? What we'll see over and over and over again as we look at the book of Acts is the apostles are arguing from the Old Testament scripture 
that what was happening at that moment was the fulfillment of God's plan in the earth. Over and over and over again, they are going to call to the, their audience's mind Old Testament scripture to say this was talking about this now. They're going to use that over and over again. Who gets in? It's the main question they're going to answer. And they're going to use Old Testament prophecies, scriptures to back up what they're saying. Okay? The other thing I want us to see and I want us to feel as we sit with this book is the unstoppable nature of the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit. Unstoppable. What we will find in the book of Acts is that nothing, not Rome, not religious power or arrogance, not even corruption inside the church could stop the love of God from advancing and transforming human hearts. Nothing, right? God is on mission in the earth. And what we're gonna see is whether you are with him or not, he is gonna accomplish his mission because he's God. He's gonna do it whether you're helping him or not. Right? Unstoppable. Nothing is going to stop the gospel from being proclaimed in human hearts, from getting transformed, more rejoicing that happened in heaven over than one sinner, you know, over one sinner repenting, right? And nothing's going to stop that party. So what we're going to see is the early church will be fraught with opposition and enemies at every turn. Every turn. You think, look, guys, you think cancel culture is a new thing? I've been having a long time. You know what cancel culture is? You disagree with me, your opinion is not my opinion, therefore you cannot talk. I'm gonna shout you, I'm gonna shout you down. You think that's new? <laughs> I mean, today, you might, you might be like, look down, if you're a Christian, right? You might be looked down on, I mean, maybe you'll lose your job, people, that's happening, right? Maybe you lose your job, you have Christian ideas. No one's gonna stone you to death. I mean, that's like cancel culture at its finest, right? So been, a lot, been around a long time, we're going to see it in the book of Acts, right? In the book of Acts, murder, bloodshed, beatings, and shipwrecks, mobs, and rage, right? Internal conflict, external pressures. And you'd say, if you just look over 30,000 foot view of the book of Acts, these guys are cursed, man. Like everything's against them. And in some cases, it's true. Everything did. See, I mean, plenty of political suspicion, Right? There's, there's all these dynamics at play. There was, in fact, there was so much political dynamics at play. Some theologians have argued that Luke wrote the book of Acts to vindicate uh, the early Christian church from being a political uprising. Some theologians have said, this is why he wrote the book. He wrote the book to prove that, this, that the Christians aren't a political party. He wrote the group to prove that, you know. So, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't go that far, but some people have, right? We have this. So let's think about the political dynamic of the day real quick, just to, just to sit with the kind of opposition that they had, right? You have this small Jewish sect on the outskirts of the Roman Empire claiming that that guy you killed Rome, well, he's back to life, so maybe you work better at that, you know? <laughs> Didn't kill him, back to life. Try harder next time. And then the mantra of this group, this small minority religious sect, right, was Jesus is Lord. And they called him, they called Jesus the son of God. <laughs> Those are the exact two labels given to Caesar. 
If you walk around saying, Jesus is Lord, everyone's thinking, that's not how that phrase goes. That phrase goes, Caesar is Lord. What are you talking about? Who's Jesus? He's the son of, no, no, Caesar's the son of God. Look, look it up, man. It's, you can look it up in history, right? They called Julius Caesar, Divi Filius, son of God. N.T. Wright notes, the emperor was the Kairos, Lord of the whole world. The one who claimed the allegiance and loyalty of subjects throughout his entire empire that seemed to cover the whole world. For the Romans, Caesar was Lord. And this small sect is insisting, no, 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 Jesus is Lord. And he has a kingdom and it's advancing and his followers were so radicalized they would die rather than say, no, Caesar's Lord, Jesus, you know, then recant, okay? So the Romans don't know what to do with him. There's all this political turmoil that's going and despite all that suspicion, despite all that risk that they know they're taking as they're stepping out into this group, right? They're spreading like wildfire all the way up to Antioch, and even further, right? So look at the map. Let's see this map right here. Here, I got a little, check me out here. Woo, the laser. This is, a, this is the first for us, isn't it? Here's Jerusalem, here's Judea. I know you can't read it. That's why I'm showing you with the laser. So all the way up to Antioch. Here, it's spreading right here, but check it out, man. Guess where it's gonna end? Whoop, right there. So Paul, all, here's Ephesus, it's Galatia, uh, Philippi. Okay, so I mean, this is a, a pretty large area, you'd think. But this deal is gonna spread all over. The world over is what they thought, right? The whole Roman Empire. Just wanna show you that because it's interesting to see the, the geography of how far it spread. That's the Roman Empire. Okay, so the group, however, who hated them the most um, was not the, the political party. They didn't know what to do with them. Mo most of the time, they were kind of, they're like, we don't know, wash their hands most of the time, right? Just like they did with Jesus. Um, but the, the, the group that hated this sect the most was, of course, their own, uh, their own uh, uh, Pharisees. The religious elite of the day is the group that's going to come down on the early church the hardest. What we're going to see over and over is that the, the, it's actually the other Jews <laughs> who are continually seeking to have them killed, to have them silenced, to drag them to Roman court so the Romans would kill them. And despite all that, and y'all, that's just a slice of the opposition. I'm just this massive, this is big overview, okay? Slice of the opposition right there that we're seeing in the book of Acts. Despite all that, spreads like wildfire. So, so riddle me this. Small, religious, minority, persecuted sect 2,000 years ago on the outskirts of the Roman Empire starts with a handful of people. And now today, one out of every three people on the earth claim to be Christian. So I don't care if you're, you hate Jesus and think church is a sham and Christianity is just, not, you gotta make sense of that somehow. Like what happened to where this thing would cover the face of the earth, right? Despite all that, right? Tiny 2,000 years ago outskirts, it's amazing. Literally, the only thing they had going for them <laughs> was their confidence in the power and presence of Jesus <laughs> via the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And apparently it was enough to do this. So as we look at Acts, we'll see over and over and over again that nothing is strong enough to stop the spirit of God from seeking and saving the lost, from transforming individuals into a new kind of humanity and creating new communities that confounded and contrasted the cultural norms of their day. It was inherently disruptive in nature, all right? So these new Jesus communities popping up 
all over the Roman Empire, all the way over. I mean, we, the map's gone, but right, but all up that peninsula, all the way over to, to Philippi and Corinth and all that stuff. So it's clearly something was attractive about these people, right? If that weren't the case, they wouldn't have grown so explosively. But it's, the, it's, it's also clear in, through the book of Acts that it's the proclamation of Jesus that proves the most polarizing effects of this new community. It wasn't just the community itself, although that was attractive apparently for some reason, which we'll see, right? But it was not just that, it was the proclamation of Jesus that proved to be the most polarizing thing, right? Commentator Howard Marshall says this, Acts is a book about mission, and it's not unfair to take one verse, uh, chapter one, verse eight, as a summary of the entirety of the book. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The purpose of the Christian church was then and is now first and foremost to bear witness to Jesus. To bear witness to Jesus. So this guy says, you can take that sentence. You'll be my witnesses to Samaria, Judea, all the ends of the earth as the summary of the entire book and the summary of the purpose and existence of the church itself. Why does the church exist? Why do we, why do, we do this thing? <laughs> why are we doing this? <laughs> What's its purpose? Right? Morally policing the universe, right? Being judgmental and condemning towards other cultures, right? Our self-righteous banner, right? Converting people to our cultural perspective, make people obey Christian things. No, it's not our purpose. It's not why we exist. Apparently, the purpose of the church is to bear witness to Jesus, is to say, this guy. The purpose of the church then and now, right? Massive arrow pointing to the person and work of Jesus. So if you call yourself a Christian and are engaged with the church at some level, unless we want to stray greatly from what scripture calls us to, at some level, there has to be what this scripture is going to call a witness, right? Bearing witness. When you witness something, you're telling someone else about something you've seen, right? Can I get a witness? You know, we don't say that around here. Whether, you know, can verify that I'm saying something, right? Witnesses see things and report something, report that thing to someone else. So this is the purpose of the church. We have to have to kind of sit with this for a second. The whole idea is that something has happened in you and that you then are telling other people about that. And what this says is that is Jesus, not your denomination, not how awesome your pastor is, <laughs> not the kind of songs you sing, right? Not your political ideology, what, what, Jesus. If you're, gonna, if you're getting bored of me saying that, just get used to it because I'm going to keep saying it. The purpose of the Christian church in the book of Acts today as well as back then is a giant arrow pointing to Jesus. And this is the thing we're going to see in the book of Acts, y'all. Some will hear about Jesus. So we're going we're gonna, to gonna sit with a lot of, we're going to see the sermons that are preached in the book of Acts, right? Shame us, shame me, right? Some will hear about Jesus, how he lived, what he, what he did, how he died, how he rose to life, how he has authority over death now and he's been resurrected and has given us. There's some, some people are gonna hear that message. They're gonna hear that witness, right? Bear witness to me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, right? They're gonna hear that. 
and they're gonna be pierced in their heart and they're gonna cry out, how can I be saved? Other people will hear the exact same thing and say, pick up a stone and kill that man. How fascinating is the gospel. You can preach the gospel, say the exact same thing, and one person falls on their face and says, how can I be saved? And another person says, I'm gonna kill you. What on earth is this message? that it provokes such amazing and startling responses from the human heart. And what we're gonna find in the book of Acts is that there is no neutral hearing of the gospel, right? We're gonna see it in extremes in the book of Acts, but we also know this in our own heart. Every time you come to church, hopefully Jesus is proclaimed, <laughs> hopefully the gospel's being spoken and heard, right? Every time a sacrifice is made clear, your heart is either softening toward that man, softening toward his truth and being drawn into worship of him, or it is hardening toward that man, hardening toward his truth and rejecting him slowly and subtly, and that can be done in the pew. Most commonly, really, is done in the pew. Every time the gospel is preached, our hearts are either softening toward it or hardening itself toward it. We're either going towards him or away from him. A neutral hearing of the gospel is impossible. It's just too radical. You can't hear it and say, meh. Because meh is actually saying something else. It's actually rejecting it and hardening your heart in subtle steps, going away to the point where you can't even hear the message, right? If this is true, if the gospel is true, if, if Christian scripture is true, either it, is, it deserves everything we have, it's the most extravagant love we've ever heard of, right, and deserves everything we are capable of giving, or if it's not true, it's a despicable lie and it needs to be buried, right? Deserves condemnation and it shouldn't be spoken of at all, right? This kind of lukewarm, nominal, cultural religious experience is just not in the book of Acts. You just don't see it. Either Jesus was Lord of all, he was worthy of all, or he was a liar or a lunatic and his followers deserved to be killed. You just didn't see this kind of, yeah, right, in the book of Acts for the most part. So and I'm telling you today, Holy Spirit filled, Jesus glorifying preaching still gets those kind of responses in our hearts, Right? And I think it's always good to remind ourselves in our day and age that this little American experience, this little experiment actually is what it's called, right? The American experiment of religious liberty that we're experiencing in, in, our, in our day and age is a hiccup on the pages of history, <laughs> right? This thing that started as a small persecuted Jewish minority sect, right? Born amidst suffering and the miraculous and all these things, as large as it would eventually grow on the pages of history, right, never really seems to go long without persecution falling on it. Like no matter, I mean, no matter what, no, even after Constantinople and after all this stuff, man, then the persecution is about Christian sex. You're Catholic, you're this. I mean, Britain has a long history of war and death and violence over Christianity. 
So no, no matter how big the sucker gets, it never seems to go very long in the pages of history. Go ahead, man, check me out. Back it up, go look. Go watch some documentaries without Christians becoming persecuted in some way or another. So pew, a, pew, a, few, a few more points that I want to uh, point out about this text, right? Notice that it says, Jesus presents himself alive by many proofs. Then we're gonna wrap it up. Um, that line comforts me a lot. Okay, this is, this is why. It's in verse three, right? By many proofs. So apparently, the disciples, even though seeing Jesus and touching him and eating with him, even though all that, their minds still struggled to comprehend what was happening in front of them. So it says he has to prove it over and over and over again by many proofs. Guys, I'm here. I'm alive. Look, I can eat. You can touch me. Many proofs over and over. I don't know about you. That just gives me comfort. Because these guys, despite the fact they saw the dude killed and rose physically from the dead, even, even after all the miraculous, walking through a wall, here's Jesus, right? Even after all that stuff, they're still like, nah, this ain't real. <laughs> this can't be real. And it says he has to, by many proofs, show them, yeah, it's me. I'm alive. And then let me point out this. It's possible that the disciples' minds are still stuck on political rescue when they ask, is it now? It's like when you're driving with your kids. <laughs> are we there yet? Are we there? No, we're not there yet. My, my uh, two-year-old has to do like speech therapy. He like has to work on his words. And we were doing it the other day. And he was like, are we, are we done? Done? And I was like, no, almost done, right? And literally between every word he had to say, done? He'd look up, done? Anyway, not the point. Just like that, the disciples are saying, is it time now? Is it now? Are we gonna restore the kingdom now? And if you notice, Jesus doesn't really answer the question. Um, he kind of dodges it. It's not for you to know, basically, right? It's like when someone asks you a question that you don't have the energy to like, explain to them. You're just like, ugh, don't, don't worry about it. You know? uh, not necessarily that. But he, he, he doesn't answer the question, but he gives them a timeline, right? Or he doesn't give them a timeline. I'm sorry. He gives them kind of a sequence, kind of a, kind of a blueprint, right? He tells them the mission, the means, the scope, and then he says, wait on my power, right? The what? What's the, what's the mission? You're going to be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, and the earth. How? After you receive power. So he gives them something, but it's not really what they're asking, right? And he says, don't do anything without this power. And we're going to sit with that more next week, right? Don't do anything. Wait, stay, wait for my strength, my guidance, my motivation, so you don't get out ahead of yourself, right? Wait. So, and then boom, taken up in the clouds. Interestingly enough, the language of that being taken up in the cloud mirrors Daniel 7, which is a prophecy given a long time ago. Daniel 7, 13 says this. I saw in the night visions and behold, the with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And so Luke is intentionally giving us this kind of language, calling to mind this prophecy out of Daniel saying, this is the guy. So this ascension into the clouds basically is saying to his followers there, as the, also with the angels sitting there saying, hey, as he went, he's gonna come back, right? That's calling to their minds. This is the guy who will be enthroned. 
This is the guy whose kingdom goes forever and ever. All creation, all peoples, right? All nations are gonna be included in what's happening right now. This is what Daniel 7, 14 is talking about. So in Acts, we will see, let's wrap it up. That in the midst of the miraculous, heartbreak, suffering, and triumph, murder, even death itself, y'all, God's kingdom grows and it grows exponentially. So I love it. I always think about this when I think of the book of Acts. I mean, you think like COVID is contagious, right? Got nothing on the gospel. <laughs> nothing on the gospel, right? So every time I think about the book of Acts, I, I think about that horribly predictable scene in every zombie or pandemic movie. Um, where you have like the military guy and you have like the president on the phone and then you have the nerdy science guy and they're all in a room. There's a big map on the wall, right? And the, the nerdy guy, obviously he's gonna save everyone in the end and you know, the president's on the phone and everyone's like sweating and you know, here's the spread, right? And there's like zombie apocalypse. We've got 12 hours, 24 hours, 72 hours, right? And then when they get to like whatever hours, like the moment of terror like drops in the room and we realize <gasps> it's over, you know? Like there's no hope, like 72 hours is gonna be everywhere. We're all gonna be zombies, right? I always think about that when I think about the book of Acts. It's this kind of uncontrollable contagion that the gospel is spreading and spreading and spreading and spreading. 72 hours, right? 100 hours, right? Out and out and out into where it completely overwhelms the system. And it seemingly has in some ways, right? And the interesting thing that I thought of, thought of when I was kind of getting ready for this is I, I kind of want to flip the picture a bit. And I... And as we sit with this, I see Satan and his demons around a table with a map on it, and they're like freaking out. <laughs> and they're overwhelmed with a sense of powerlessness under the inevitable and unstoppable kingdom of God advancing via the love of God and the Holy Spirit through the earth. And I just like to sense and imagine a moment of terror in the enemy's heart as he realizes that this thing is, it's over. Like they, they, they've got their own mission. They've got the power of God himself. And there's nothing I can do to stop it. And what we're gonna see is that he is gonna throw everything he can throw at these guys to make them shut up. The enemy is gonna pull out all the stops in the book of Acts. He's gonna use Rome, right? I'm gonna use this geopolitical power to persecute. I'm sorry, brother, just gonna use the roads that Rome made. Spread faster. He's gonna incite mobs to stone Stephen. Guess what that does? Persecution breaks out and they just spread all over the empire. Guess what they're talking about? The kingdom, right? Enemy's gonna use natural disaster and venomous snakes and storms and all that does is shipwreck Paul on an island and he's preaching to a captive audience. Malta, saved, <laughs> right? He's gonna use political leaders to imprison them. Fine, Paul's just gonna convert all your guards and then write half the New Testament in prison. Unstoppable, unstoppable. The gospel can't be stopped. Love of God cannot be quenched. No matter what the enemy's gonna throw at him, we're gonna see at every turn, it just makes for the spreading of the gospel, right? This is a large book, like I said, and we will not read every story to dissect it because it would take a year. So to milk this thing, I want to encourage you to read it during the week along with us. Next week is obviously Pentecost um, and we're gonna sit with that and it's gonna be great. So let's stand and pray.